Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Tracy Follows. Tracy Follows is a UK-based strategist, futurist, and CEO and founder of Future Made, which is a strategic foresight and futures consultancy. She has a first-class degree in philosophy, honours, and a Master of Science in Technical Change and Industrial Strategy, both gained at the University of Manchester. Tracy specialises in topics like the future of work, ethics and AI, the future of media, marketing and entertainment, the future of gender, the future of women's well-being and youth futures. Her latest book, published in March 2021, is entitled The Future of You. Can your identity survive the 21st century technology and explores the future of identity? Welcome to FuturePod, Tracy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very flattered to be on. Yeah, this is a thrill. <laughs> it's a thrill to, for me to talk to someone who listens to FuturePod as well, so thanks for doing that. I'm a big fan. <laughs> so you know the drill as a, as a listener. Mm-hmm. Question one, what is the Tracy Follows story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, as we were just saying, it's hard to know where to start, isn't it? Um, I'll try not to spend the whole of this FuturePod episode uh, talking about me. I think probably it's best for me to start when I came out of university. As you say, I'd done philosophy and kind of technology strategy. So I was obviously very confused. Um, uh, <laughs> it, but it all makes sense in the end, as, as often these things do, right? So I'd done that. And so I wasn't going to go into a very technical job. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I ended up in advertising. And I worked in advertising probably for nearly 25 years. Um, But my journey through advertising was, I think, pretty interesting looking back. Uh, Of course, you make sense of it looking back. You're not necessarily able to make sense of it as it's happening. I worked in advertising and uh, from about 1994. And then around 2000, I saw a job for an advertising manager So I was agency side at the time. So this was going client side. It was an advertising manager for a mobile telco called One to One. Now, I don't know whether you you ever had it in Australia. probably didn't. We had it in the UK. And it was a very feisty, irreverent, um, interesting, community-driven, very kind of young and sparky mobile telco brand. Um, And because this is back in like 2000 and everything that was going on with mobile was really exciting. Like the technology was exciting. There were big promises about what could be, uh, half of which never came to fruition, of course. But there were big promises about what this technology would enable um, in terms of communications. Anyway, cut a a pretty longish story short. I, I got that job and went to London, relocated and worked for one-to-one and did some amazing advertising, really famous advertising. I mean, even the sixth form exams, I think, I can't remember exactly which exam, but the exam paper ended up having a a question on it. Who would you like to have a one-to-one with? Because that was strap line for the advertising. So it was really uh, famous at the time. Anyway, it then got bought by the Germans, Deutsche Telekom, and became T-Mobile. And I ended up being international advertising manager for T-Mobile. It was interesting, that was, because it gave me my first glimpse, probably, of different cultures and the way in which they use and understand communications differently, particularly sort of sort of myth, a mythology, a metaphor, and all of that, and, and rational versus emotional communication. I then went to BT and was head of communications, marketing communications at BT and worked on some really amazing tech like BT Vision, which was their TV proposition and BT Fusion, which you'd be on your mobile. And as you came into your house, it would switch to this weird thing, which was called Wi-Fi. But it was a little ahead of its time. I tell you this because what what emerged was I obviously had a deep interest in technology, but also in society and also in communication and media, because what I was my job on all of these 
in all of these uh, positions was really to try and understand consumers and get them to adopt this new technology, this emerging technology, or certainly feel more comfortable with it. Or if they weren't going to adopt it, you kind of try to understand why. And afterwards, I went back into agency side and advertising and worked as a strategist, but again, ended up on O2, which at the time was, you know, the UK's biggest mobile network. And we won the digital pitch for that. And that was like the biggest digital piece of business in the UK. And again, it was it's this pattern of me trying to um, understand and facilitate and maybe in some cases translate some of this technology. And I ended up at JWT and JW Thompson, as it was also known, sort of around about 2012, I think, uh, as chief strategy officer. So it's the it was the world's oldest advertising agency at the time. It was over 150 years old. And I went on a, a leadership course there. And it was hosted and held by Charlotte Beers, who's a bit of a legend in the advertising and marketing world, because she was the first female sort of CEO or chair of Ogilvy. I mean, really feisty I think she's Texan Mm. you know real real pioneer real uh, I don't know trailblazer if you like for for women in industry and she was in her 80s and she ran this course and we were very privileged to go on it we were kind of handpicked but during it the whole point of it was to look at ourselves our story the the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and try and work out what our future path was they were trying to make leaders of us really um and it became obvious within this exercise which happened over several months that I was an innovator and she dubbed me a future stalker which maybe we'll come back to later interesting she said that to me she labeled it me and she said to me you know a very innovative person and you're working in a 150 year old agency (laughs) take stock and I think no wonder you're frustrated After that, it sort of became clear to me and I looked back and I thought all these times I've been working in these technology companies and doing this, I've been doing foresight and futuring really in some, to some degree. Um, but I've been doing it in a way that's been trying to translate it to a mainstream and to a, to a consumer base. And I ended up leaving that job, going to Houston, doing the certificate, meeting Andy and Peter Bishop and just having the best time because it was all the things I really wanted to do. And it gave me some tools and some frameworks to to think about what I was doing properly. And then I set up my own business. And so I guess for many people who do end up in futures, it's my second career. I think a lot of people have found that, certainly people I've, I've spoken to. And yet still in the job I'm doing now as a futures consultant with clients like Google and Diageo and Virgin or Sky, I'm still deeply interested in and pursuing this joining of the dots between sort of philosophy, technology, culture and society. So in, in a sense, I wish I'd done it earlier. But of course, as someone pointed out to me, you can't really. <laughs> no. Well, it sounds like you did it at the right time in the sense that when you were ready, when you'd when you'd almost put together the experience that suddenly foresight was the thing you needed. Mm. When I was at JWT, I actually looked at the marketing intelligence department who were doing lots of market research. And I had already discovered this thing at the time called foresight, which I was already starting to get interested in, of course, but I hadn't really kind of delved into or met anyone in the in the, mm. in the foresight community. I found that actually quite hard. And that was probably like 2013, 14. I found it hard to find the people. It's, it, I think people are much more accessible now and that's brilliant. Yeah. It's much more visible. But I actually turned that market intelligence department into planning foresight. And that's what I called it. We pointed it much more to horizon scanning and, and some trends and, and actually doing what I kind of look back on now as strategic foresight in a simple way, not in, hmm. in, in the depth that, you know, you would do it. But, um, yeah, and that was interesting. But I think, actually, it was a bit ahead of its time. I mean, clients loved it, um, but they didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> it's always the issue. So do you want to explain Future Stalker? Future Stalker, um, yeah, it was a kind of interesting term. I hadn't thought about that. I'd heard of the word futurologist and futurist, of course, and foresight pr- practitioner. But that was her assessment of the situation or the potential, I think, of, of that role. I quite like it because it makes you sound a little bit like a detective, like you're out mm. there, you know, looking for the clues to the future. And 
I think my interpretation of it is because I think the future is plural. It's not that you're stalking, looking for the probable future or the only future that is uh, has potential or is going is going to is going to emerge. But I looked at it as sort of looking for clues as to which types of futures might emerge. So which versions of the future can I detect? I mean, as we're increasingly thinking about complexity as much as we are systems thinking, I was definitely starting to think, actually, the the, the idea of a future stalker is, is pretty interesting. Actually, you're out there mm. picking through the chaos to find the yeah. clues to the to the potential futures, I think. That notion of the future being multiple was that something you picked up from sort of, you know, working with Andy and Peter, or do you think that you even saw the future as being a multiple thing even when you were working, even in the advertising, when you were obviously chasing the future? Yeah, you know, I, I think I always had it somehow in a mental model in my head, but I didn't realise and I never, ever articulated it. It's interesting because when you're pitching for pieces of business, particularly you're obviously doing lots of in-depth research and insight, you're creating ideas, creative ideas, and then you take them to consumers and you're trying to probe and delve and give them stimulus to respond to. And actually, whether it's a brand or a product that you're working on, you most of the time you're giving them sort of three or four different ideas. And okay, you can say they're yeah. three or four different interpretations, but each of them take the brand or the product to a different future, really. And I suppose that was always, I always, was interested in in probing those and you kind of think well you know it this was close it could have been this way ended up being that way but it it could have been either and we've created the we've created the decision about where to take it or certainly the people who are participating in the research have that's where i think um you know the similarity is probably it's an interesting notion that you i mean whether you are equally committed to multiple futures or you tend to be leaning towards something even though you say the future is multiple whether in fact you actually are preferring a future mm. notion you know, mm. you know one of the challenges i'm sure it happens in in your business as well is that while we talk about the future being open and therefore we should either you know let others choose or let the environment select for us we also have our preference and yes our preference as facilitator consultant is not always helpful for the client. It's a very good point, actually. I mean, I, I guess we all do have that bias towards a preference, whether it's said or unsaid. I think it's gone even further than that these days, hasn't it? We're into sort of activist futures. Mm. And I look at that and I, I understand that and I, I see lots of people doing that very well. It's not something I would do. It's It's not really... I don't know if this goes back to the philosophy of, I mean, maybe Hume or someone, but I think there's a difference between the demarcation between the is and the ought. And um, I've always thought I, I really want to work out what is going on and then possibly um, work out what ought to be going on. And I, I suppose just mentally, I've always had a demarcation between those two, but I understand that increasingly, you know, those two things are becoming really rather merged. Yeah. Again, Richard Slaughter, quite provocatively, just he uh, wrote a piece for the for the community saying that we should give up on the notion of alternative futures. Mm. As he says, we are actually losing alternatives. That we, uh, the actual fan of possibilities is narrowing now. And uh, there's a there's a conversation on FuturePod between uh, Riel Miller and John Sweeney around that. Is the notion of alternative futures really a useful and helpful thing for the field to support? It's, as I say, it's a provocative idea. I think, it, I mean, we have to have, in my mind, we have to have alternative futures. Yeah. But the conversation, free speech, language, thought, it is all funneling down to an overarching acceptable future or acceptable narrative like acceptable by whom who who has put these sort yeah. of markers who's put this framing um around it yep. um and i think you know maybe we'll come on i i have a, a point of view on, on on what's happened there but i think that's definitely when i was thinking about the book you mentioned i was I mean, the reason i've written it is because i feel that there are some possibilities around personal identity that are being shut off now that are becoming sort of, you know, you, you go down the road and you you arrive and you find out it's a cul-de-sac um, because there is an unspoken metaphor and an unspoken kind of framework or model that is 
is pushing us and pushing our values and behaviors and language into a, into a particular into a particular direction and it's quite hard to sort of push against it and when you do push against it you certainly feel the kind of backlash or the or the the force come kind of back at you mm. thanks Tracy Second question, the the one where I encourage the guest to talk to the listeners about a method or framework or philosophy or whatever that is core to who they are and what they do. So what do you want to talk to? It's such a good question, this. It really makes you think about how you spend your time, doesn't it? Or what you you spend it on. Um, I mean, obviously, and you've had many, many guests who can speak with more experience than me on the tools and frameworks like scenario planning and I mean three horizons I love um all all of this has helped me a lot but I mean I find writing a lot and reading a lot enables one to work out what one really thinks (laughs) um but increasingly talking to people a lot which has actually been really difficult in the last 15 months I've found it you know, because the way I usually do my a lot of my research or a cer- certain dimension of my research is to go and speak to people, <laughs> um, of course, experts um, and of course other futurists and practitioners, but also just people. And I wondered when I was thinking about this whether this again is kind of like a weird hangover from my advertising and, and media days because I was so used to chatting with consumers. All the time I was like watching their behavior. I was talking to them, trying to find out what their values were and trying to understand their motivations or what they really believed. And and obviously a lot of the time, you know, you can sit doing research and they're telling you that they believe one thing, but they're giving you all the signals that they actually believe another. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I believe the opposite, yes. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I, I, you know, I remember from years ago when we used to show scripts and on a narrative tape and we'd have the music and um, somebody would be, you know, they'd be tapping their feet, nodding their head along and then say, so tell me about that. Oh, I hated it. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's always, fa- I mean, people watching is, is fascinating anyway. But I think I really wanted to, I think there's a lot of people who think that, well, you can't really determine or certainly investigate the future from going and speaking to ordinary people that what would they have to contribute on the future and most people aren't thinking about the future in the way that we would think about it you know they, they've got other things going on in their life but actually I think there are ways to eke this out from people and actually people do think about the future a lot they certainly think about their own future and the future of their family mm. and what might happen in the future and how it will affect them but I think particularly when I've done projects with clients, I've always had an element where we go and speak to, I know it might be in-depth interviews with say 12 consumers or users of a product or a service, or it might be more. And we tend to get, you know, really diverse demographics uh, or age groups or a good generational spread. I think the clue to it is that you have to choose the right people to talk to. So when I'm recruiting people, I'm looking for creative, innovative, articulate, curious people. So already there is a bias towards that, I suppose. But then it's about how you construct the research. You know, what tasks do you give them? What exercises do you try to challenge them with? What what questions do you ask them? And you're very good at this, Peter. I know you've asked very incisive questions. It's the value of the information is is really quite dependent upon how you format these things and the approach you take and the and the crafting of the questions and, and knowing what you want to get out so I think it's in some ways an undervalued it's not a method but maybe a practice an undervalued practice of of uncovering what people really think and feel about something pertaining to the future as I say it could be a product it could be a brand or it could be a concept or it could be a new technology or it could just be you know, policies or what they see going on around them or how they see society changing. But to uncover their bias and assumptions and beliefs, I think you get such nuggets sometimes. And I've learned an awful lot about where I think the future is heading from talking specifically to like kind of a, a younger generation who have these characteristics and who can articulate 
what they're doing and why they're doing it, particularly with media. So I'm interested how you ask the question because, well, I mean, as you said, you I'm imagining you don't ask them what they think the future is going to be. I never asked them that. <laughs> <laughs> no. So talk me through the way you would you know, frame the series of questions and and actually, you know, what are you trying to get to? Are you trying to get to their hopes, their fears, their beliefs? Are you trying to find out their behaviour, their motivation? Their, I mean, what are the things that you really start to uncover? Yeah, it's interesting. So I won't give you the specific name of it, but for example, I did a very big project for a big technology company who had created a technology that well, could make your communication much more efficient and effective and you know, really compelling, really personalized. But in talking to consumers, it became clear that actually they felt that this had the potential to track them. So it's interesting, isn't it, how the engineers might think about a particular product bringing a benefit, but consumers, because they have a perception already or they have some fear about something, have interpreted the motivation or the purpose of the product in a completely different way. As we uncovered that, where we talked about how people communicate, how they go about their day. In this particular piece of research, I did this as friendship groups or pairs, because it's it's another interesting factor of, it's one thing to be asking people questions or trying to get to the bottom of a, a subject matter one-to-one, but actually when you have one of their best friends or somebody they work with alongside of them, it kind of keeps them true as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's quite interesting. And we talked to them about the ways in which they would utilize this technology. We talked to them about how they would see other people using it. That's always a good one. Yep. Taking it away from the personal. It just gave a bit a different perspective, if you like. And we talked about the values and the beliefs of a company that would do something like this. And people are very willing to talk about this. It's really a sense of somebody's going to say something and it'll be a throwaway comment. And you realize that it's a nugget. And if you then find that, then you can drill down on it. And then you can find out a lot more about what their real fears or passions or mm. expectations are and what they anticipate. And you can you can also kind of uncover where people get their kind of disappointment from. You know, you realize what their expectations of the future are or were okay. and why they weren't met. And that, that can sometimes be disappointing for people. Yeah, that's that thing about the disappointment and regrets um, mm. are often the things that we hold on to and we use to influence future decisions. That's a very good point. I mean, I have asked people in the past, you know, when did this work brilliantly or when was this a mistake or when did you have your failure or when did this fail or that fail? Some people are reticent, but they do open up and you're right. You're absolutely right. It does give give you a clue to how they're going to sort of uh, overcompensate next time. Yeah. I wonder too, I mean, I, I'm just kind of, you know, as a complete amateur, but I'm just leaning into the space. I can imagine one of the interesting questions to talk about a technology, for example, is to talk to adults, but then imagine, but then ask the question, would you be happy if your children had access to this? Yes, that's very interesting. In fact, you've... um. I mean, you only have to ask that to any of the sort of tech moguls, don't you? Yeah. I remember interviewing. I remember interviewing Steve Hilton once at a conference, and uh, you know, it, it was shocking at the time. This is many years ago because it was shocking at the time because he told us that oh, the people in San Francisco who make all this tech, they don't let their own children use it. <laughs> yeah. And people are like, "Sorry, what? We understand that much better now. Um, we're not as gullible, I think." Actually. That's reminded me that I have done research where I've done research with children, but with the parents watching the children. And actually what I'm really doing is the research on the parents, Yeah. the way in which they either protect or sort of encourage or all sorts of other things, their own children to answer the question in, in a certain way. Yep. Yeah, interesting. It, when you can get those multi-dimensions or perspectives and you can look at the connections between them rather than just going head on and doing a one-to-one, so what do you think of this? It's so much more rich and complex and valuable. I'm sure. Thanks, Tracy. Third question, the one where I talk to Tracy Follows, human being, <laughs> a citizen, about the emerging futures 
around you that you find that you're paying attention to, that you're thinking about, the futures that excite you, the futures that possibly concern you? So how do you see the emerging futures around you? What's What's got your attention? What has been my obsession <laughs> for the last five years is what I see as a trend towards a loss of self-sovereignty or certainly a sense of self-sovereignty. I think, and there's we could debate the reasons for this or the drivers of change, I think we are feeling that we are losing our autonomy, the capability and, and the competence really to decide who we are and what our boundaries are and what makes us us. And part of the reason I say that, and as I was researching this in a lot more depth, I came to the conclusion that one of the drivers of change for this is the very nature of the internet, that it is inherently networked, which makes it inherently communitarian. And we've seen that play out for good and bad, of course, in in lots of different areas. But it really was making me think, hang on a minute, we are almost sleepwalking into this communitarian world in which everyone is connected in, a, in ways they may or may not wish to be, and that lots of what we are asked to or encouraged to or persuaded to do is for the common good. But is that also going to be for the individual good, mm. if you see what I mean? So I might, it might sound like I'm... I mean, speaking riddles, I'm trying to think of a good example. So I think one of them is what's happening with health, for example, and that's come to the fore in the last 12, 15 months. And you look at what the World Economic Forum are talking about with biobanks. There's definitely this sense of we need to give up our personal health data, lots of our biological data, um, not just so that the state, in most cases, but not all, can work out how to predict the next disease or what um, drugs they need to work on next, but so that it can go into this sort of pool, this um, public biobank, and we can look at, you know, a group as a whole or the public as a whole. That is all articulated in an interesting document called the Internet of Bodies by the World Economic Forum. And that's all fine. And I can take that on face value. But once you start digging around, you start thinking, hang on a minute, who has this data? How's it being used? How are people analysing it? Am I being monitored? And what will happen to it in the future when perhaps the terms and conditions that I signed up to um, have been, what should we say, evolved so that um, what I thought I signed up to isn't really what I signed up to. And it really is the emergence of this whole idea, which I think is going to be the battle of the next probably 20 years, of a sense of self-sovereignty, a desperate wanting to regain our own personal identity versus the sort of being one of the tribe, one of the group, just a node in a network um, that is highly, highly communitarian. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with communitarianism or community. It's great. It's a good value to have, but it depends who is in control of the community, I think, and who holds the power and what people are being asked to do and whether we're all being asked to conform. And actually, it's really about consensus, not about individual expression or responsibility. Is it also a generational challenge? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, definitely. And this is more tricky to unpick, isn't it? But um, there's definitely been a generation driven by certain values that are very much more communitarian. And actually, in a way, if we think about millennials like that, who can blame them? They probably haven't had the footholds that previous generations have had in the economy. Lots of them can't own their own house or home. And so they start to look towards other kinds of values to regain purpose and meaning in life. And that is completely understandable. And these communities of interest have grown up because the internet has facilitated them. I think what my concern is that it's when you have the state and you have oligarchical or monopolistic technology platforms getting together and creating larger groups that can be persuaded or controlled, then that becomes a real issue. And I think, you know, we often talk about big tech and I think I'm starting to think, yeah, but what about little me? Mm. You know, and little me, what is our role in this? It's all very well to talk about rights but individuals want responsibility. And I think it's important that we do have a sense of identity so that we can pick out 
who this responsibility or duty or right or emotion belongs to. We're not just one big amorphous blob. We are all very special individual people. And I just want us to be able to preserve that sense of self, really. I wonder too, I'm just curious about this, the thing that emerged about the time of the Black Lives Matter, Mm. which happened in America, but of course it spun over into every country in the world. In England, for example, they were throwing statues of of slave owners Mm -hmm. in rivers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so forth. I'm, I'm wondering whether this thing which kind of goes under the term of woke, Mm -hmm. this notion of people sort of wanting to write history a different way, change language to be of a certain kind, whether there's something in that, which again seemed to be a generationally driven activity, it also links back into what you're talking about in terms of people actually wanting their, either wanting their selfhood or wanting a shared sense of as you say, collective sense of right and wrong, good and bad, that kind of thing. Mm. Now, this is very interesting because I think at the heart of much of this is the media, the, the media technology that we, we now have available to us, the way in which it influences our communication. And I suppose you, you can go back to Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, the media is the message. Exactly, exactly that, and the explanation. And I'm getting quite obsessed with Marshall McLuhan. I'm doing this course where we literally go through chapter by chapter each week. It's absolutely fascinating. And one of the things I have realised is, and he said it a long time ago, that we've entered post-literacy. So it's interesting that you talk about the BLM things because I think part of the the reason for their emergence in so many different places Obviously, it's about people's lived experience, but it's also about the media and the way the media accelerated it and augmented it it into certain stories. And I think if you do go back to Marshall McLuhan's point about this, you can see emerging as well through other forms of new media that are are very, well, they're not about literacy. They're much more about sort of oral media or kind of social audio meter media. I mean, we've seen the, the rise of Clubhouse, for example. Mm. That's a great practical example. But what he was saying that was that struck me as very interesting about this shift is that um, as we kind of leave this notion of literacy behind, we're also leaving the notion of separateness behind. So his point of view was that with the written language, the alphabet, writing things out, you separate yourself, you know, from what's going on around you, the environment, but you also separate yourself from another individual. So he's really explaining a a technology. So the phonetic writing, the technology extends the visual power of words, but detaches us from our own emotions. And he said something like, and I'll probably really badly paraphrase it, it's language does for intelligence what the wheel does for the feet and the body in that it enables you to move from thing to thing easier, but with less involvement. And I think that's really interesting because the media that we have now is very immersive, whether it's social media or the emerging virtual media, it's very, very immersive. So we're in it and actually our, mo- our emotions are touching. You know, individuals are much closer to each other through their emotions and closer to their environment. And I just wonder if this is partly the drive towards communitarianism as well, because it's less about the rational and the literal. And we're, we're immersed in some very you know, heightened emotions in this mm. kind of media. I think I think that's probably what's happening too. Fascinating, Trace. Fascinating. Fourth question, the communication one. I'm dying to hear this one. So how does Tracy Fellows describe herself and explain what she does to people who don't necessarily understand what Tracy does. Gosh, you're assuming that I understand what I do. <laughs> well, I, I guess as a strategist, I suppose it's, it really depends who I'm speaking to. I guess if it's like a C-suite and I'm doing something at board level, yep. I'll tend to play up like the strategist bit. So it's the you know strategic foresight. It's the, the strategist who can help us 
unpack some of the potential futures and help us with preparedness. But obviously, if I'm working with younger generations or it's startups, then it's it's slightly different. It's much more around futuring and it's about, you know, new opportunities and innovation and innovation platforms. So I don't know really is the answer to that. I've tended to, to call myself a, fu- a futurist, although I don't know. I think in some ways I'm I'm more of a translator of possible futures. I'm, you know, it's not like the Ray Kurzweil's who really are out there, you know, hmm. create really interesting potential futures. Maybe sometimes I fall back on the future stalker description that we talked about earlier. But what I am finding is that certainly when you do talk to people in industry or in business, they are very, very keen, even over the last 12, 18 months, very keen to look at foresight um, and futuring to give them. It's another tool for leadership, isn't it? I think that's really what's coming to the fore and that they can see now. Um, how useful it is in terms of methodologies and tools, how useful it is not just to prepare oneself for different possible futures and and end up being prepared, but actually give them the confidence that they need in this this newly complex, chaotic kind of world to help them with their leadership skills. I was going to ask you about what's your assessment of the audience that you're talking to post-COVID. Has there been a shift in people's either interest preparedness or the things they're interested in, in what you're doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's been a an explosion in the course content, hasn't there? Mm. Partly because we're working remotely. And so in a sense, it's easier to get people together in a group and do some teaching in a kind of one-dimensional Zoom way, I guess. But partly because people have realised, you know, people have talked about pandemics for how long? Um, many governments have even had their plan. They've been in every scenario set for the last 25 years. Yeah, totally. Isn't it amazing? I'm sure when we look back on this, it will just be how did no one – well, I was going to say how did no one prepare, but the, the sad fact is that governments did prepare and other organisations did prepare and people always knew that it was high on the on the list of you know high-risk, high-impact sort of lists. So what went wrong? What's been really interesting to me is the way in which those plans have gone out the window when this thing hit. And actually, governments, scientists, special advisors, you know, healthcare professionals have made completely different decisions which weren't on the plan. You could say one reacting to the events, but also I think being highly influenced by what, again, actually what they saw through the media. Mm. So again, you have to look at the the influence of the media on you know government's responses. I think because the toll, in many many ways, that is hidden at the moment from people who are in lockdown is never really seen on the media. So it never gets treated in the same way that obviously you know people in hospital beds and all of that are going to be seen and is going to be treated through um, rolling news day in day out. And once again, I think that had a massive effect on what governments in particular, but companies as well, decided to do and how they decided to treat this and who they decided to protect or not. When we look back on it, it'll be a whole different story to the one we're thinking is the story of today. You've kind of foreshadowed my question, which is how have experts and expertise come out of this? Not well, I don't think, which is why I suspect they keep saying, follow the science, follow the science. It's almost like, please stop overcompensating. Because one of the things we know is that it's not just the experts, it's which kind of experts in what. So as I understand it, in the UK, um, SAGE group, who are supposed to be the scientific experts, mostly they're modelers and mathematicians and behavioural scientists. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a single epidemiologist. No. And I'm kind of going, where has all the wisdom gone? The wisdom that um, civilizations have built up over years about what a virus is, how to treat it, and the way in which the human reacts to a virus and the environment um, sort of caters for naturally a virus. Where has all that wisdom gone? I'll give you one of Peter Hayward's, you know, sort of, if, mm. it's not a theory, but it's certainly just a kind of very, very light observation. I am fascinated by countries like Vietnam and Thailand Mm -hmm. 
and Taiwan and others and, and, and Korea, how they responded to, to the challenge. And one thing that they appeared to have more of than possibly places like America and so forth is a level of social trust and cohesion. Yes, exactly. Where they didn't have technology to the same level, they didn't have so-called experts to the same level, but what they had was decentralised social cohesion. Mm-hmm. And COVID has been a great test of our levels of social capital. I completely agree. In fact, when I was writing my book, I interviewed Audrey Tang, the digital minister of Taiwan. I just wrote to her, said I was fascinated by what she was doing. Could she possibly give me an interview? And to my amazement, she did. I mean, she's <laughs> she's fighting a pandemic. She's in the middle of um, a very, very busy government job. And she managed to speak to me for a book for which I would be eternally grateful because there was so much insight in that conversation. She told me that when they had SARS-1, they went into lockdown in Taiwan. And it was so disastrous that it was then seen later as unconstitutional, basically. And therefore, they were told that they would have to find other ways Mm. to deal with this pandemic. I mean, if only we had been listening. And I said to her, Western liberal democracies have chosen to lock down their population in a way that China would, and I cannot understand it. And she said to me, it's interesting you've chosen the words chosen. Like, they did have a choice. So the governments here will kind of present it in a way that, oh, there wasn't a choice. But of course, there was a choice. There was no impact analysis done. And in in the way we were talking about earlier, the alternatives weren't really investigated. We borrowed a model, which one would be shocked, I think, to see in, in Western liberal democracies. But one of the other things, and you're quite right, that she was talking about was a, a collective intelligence, a social mandate, participatory approach using digital tools. She talked to me about the platforms they use digitally where they put up policy ideas and they get um, the population to upvote and downvote on them. Um, She talked about how she takes the government departments out and around and about Taiwan, even to remote areas, and they take a telepresence um, kind of screen and they take the government to the people. They don't expect the people to come to the government. And she also tells the story of when they first had an inkling that there was a virus. I think it was on December the 31st of um, 2019. And there was a, a blogger uh, in a forum and his name, he or she was called No More Pipe. And they alerted, they started alerting the the forum saying, we think there's a virus. The government picked this up. And instead of going, oh, don't be ridiculous, it's conspiracy theory, they said, well, perhaps there is, investigated it. And by the 1st of January, they'd taken, the government had taken action against the virus, not against the people, against the virus. And I think she, at pains to say, we work for the people, not the other way around. And Interestingly, in China, when I've done research and looked at their social credit score system and all those sorts of things, there's definitely distrust between peers. Uh, There's a trust of the authority, the state, and not between neighbours and peers. In Taiwan, there's trust between the peers and trust between the government and the populace. And I think increasingly in the West, there is a lack of trust of both the state to the citizen. Yeah, that, that puts you in a bad place, doesn't it, if you don't trust anyone? Exactly. And that's when, you know, that's when you get um, conspiracy theories or you get problems or you get people wanting to, you know, not be open to different narratives and points of view, I guess. Thanks, Trace. Last question. Can you tell me about the book? (laughs) I can. So I'd had this idea for the book, looking at personal identity and the effects of digital technology on it. And of course, when we locked down, I thought, crikey, well, I'm not going to be going to Tokyo and California and all these lovely, and Canada, all these things that I had planned. I'm going to sit here for nine months and write this book. So that's what I did. So I wrote it to the most part of 2020. And really, the premise of it is that for many, many millennia, probably, we've um, had the debate about where does identity reside? Does it reside in the consciousness or does it reside in the physicality of the body? And I think the debate's moved on now because I think along with the psychology of the self and the biology of the self, 
we've now got a third dimension, which is the technology of the self. That's how important I think these digital technologies are in that they are influencing, shaping, animating, just recreating our own sense of self-identity. For some people, that's great. You know, they're in these virtual worlds, living with avatars, and they've got virtual beings, and they're exploring alternative identities, multiple identities. And for other people, it's more of a struggle because there's a a difficulty getting a kind of sense of integrity for for the self. And so that's what I'm exploring, really. And people have differing levels of access to technology and access to technology is, of course, an economic factor. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine having selves that are augmented by technology is available to classes of people. That's very true. So particular chapters on, there's one chapter on replacing you, which is about, you know, enhanced cognition, if you like, or even artificial intelligence living amongst us or inside us in a way helping us with uh, with cognitive tasks, there's a chapter enhancing you on the kind of transhumanism sort of theme. So augmenting and enhancing oneself with science and technology and what that really means and for whom. Because I suppose in part of the conclusion, I'm I'm kind of concluding that the self is now almost like a little equation, which is, you know, my biology plus my psychology divided by my technology. Because the technology could literally divide us, not only divide our individual self, because we're now fragmented and distributed across the internet, but actually divide society because only the wealthy will be able to afford Elon Musk's Neuralink or to sort of be able to exit a nation state if they want to and go and live in a mm. slightly more virtual world or a citadel that's been created with a alternative digital currency. So we can see that the ways in which science and technology are affecting us as an individual and society is is potentially very, very divisive because, yet again, we're not self-sovereign. We don't have control. The control will reside on those who enable the technology, provide the platforms, the, the, the monopolies, and that's, that's not the individual. Those, those are big global monopolies. Mm. But you're a futurist and not a determinist. So I would <laughs> imagine without, without giving away what's in the book, because we want people to buy the book, if somebody was concerned about how their identity is going to be shaped and managed and controlled by technologies, are there things that a sensible person would start doing now to, if you like, maintain a level of control and agency over identity? Yes, I think the rhyme that the first things would be to to make oneself aware of a lot of the technology behind this to also read terms and conditions and contractual arrangements. I know it's really, um, and we all do it, I do it, obviously. We all scroll to the bottom and click agree and then go on. <laughs> and then find out later what we've signed <laughs> up to. I know we all do that. But I think the main thing is if people can make themselves more aware of what's really going on in gene editing, what's really going on in blockchain and uh, legal identity authentication, across various governments and, and nation states, what's really going on with the digital afterlife. Well, one has a, a better chance of lobbying whoever's in power, whether it's a social media giant or a, a nation state, of lobbying for what they think the right representation of them and their identity is or the right future is. At the moment, I feel like people are just kind of wafting around, kind of going, well, it's been all right for kind of 20 years, you know, some technology good, some's bad, but it hasn't really affected my life dramatically. Well, it will affect one's life dramatically when this technology is not only sitting outside us, but sitting inside us. Yes, I think all of us have to do what we should do, like you say, take responsibility for what we're signing up for. The other thing I think we could maybe consider doing, because I do this, is that there are actually there are actually good people out there fighting the good fight for us. There are. And I'm thinking of EFF, for example, the Electronic mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Foundations. And, I mean, they're a volunteer-driven organisation. They, they operate on donations and everything else, and they fight. They fight for individual electronic rights. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't be the only organisation that people could support to fight for your rights. I agree. It feels like we've either got like maybe the EU coming up with its, you know, quite hard and fast, clunky regulation, or it's just us on our own as individuals. So 
we would it would be great if we could create more of those kinds of groups mm. that could be uh, now this is where i will um kind of get behind activism <laughs> so <laughs> real um actors lobbyists and activists for this it, it's hard to choreograph that it's hard to organize that i understand that um but the more people that are aware of it maybe the more people that make a bigger noise because whatever you think about trump you know him being banned from the the president of the united states being banned from a two billion population social media platform is not right in my view and not banned by a country no you've got real dictators doing horrific things um they're okay they can just post out anything or tweet something i mean i really think this will come this is the nub of it this is that who is more powerful the social media platform and with all of its plans and proposals to sort of become the purveyor of our public services when they are all digital or the nation state at one level that's the macro battle that we've got to fight as individuals over sort of personal identity and autonomy of that and self-sovereignty versus the collectivism the the monopolism if you like uh, or monopoly of the majority it's hard to know what to do but i am willing to like open up the debate i mean the book is is the starter it's certainly by no means the end of this and, and i've said to people before but i want people to debate this and let's open up the discussion and let's think about what we could do what organizations we could create or what tools we could give people um, and how we could make a bit more noise about it and bring bring it to the fore of the media debate um so anybody that wanted to talk about that to me in more detail i'm totally open for that discussion <laughs> Well, thanks, Trace. I've had a thoroughly enjoyable time talking about your interests as a future stalker and certainly uh, share your concern about handing our identity for safekeeping to for-profit technology organisations. Mm. But thank you very much for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your fantastic podcast. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.